Lord, today we do desire to, above everything, praise you. There's not much to add to those prayers. We just want to leave all of them, the concerns, the issues, the health concerns, and every little detail that you would take care of them. And we trust that even as we haven't got to the passage yet, but in Romans 8, it tells us that your spirit is praying because we don't know how. And Lord, we don't know how to pray, not knowing all of the details, all of the situations, and particularly not knowing what you are doing. We just desire to submit to you and allow you to work out your plan in each of these situations. And we know that you're working all things for good for those that are called according to your purpose. So we commit our time to you this morning, desiring that you would speak to us through your word and that we would have clarity of thought and that uh, we would set aside anything that would be distracting from us or sin that we need to confess, that we would confess that, that we may be fully in tune with you and in fellowship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. And don't forget Bruno. Remember we met him last week, so... And it's good to have a representative from the White House with us. We're going to look at the book of Romans. You may not recognize it, but I'm going to get into a little bit of science here today. And you might, I don't, well, most of you wouldn't be surprised because I mentioned some of these things lots, but when it comes to things scientific, you know, people stress the idea of truth, and in reality, every scientist will tell you that science does not give you absolute truth. There's only one source of absolute truth. It has to come from an absolute source. In other words, something or someone that is eternal, unchanging, in other words, immutable, one that is omniscient, one that has all power. So absolute truth is not only from God, but Bible defines absolute truth as God himself. All wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ. So from scripture, there are these apparent contradictions with science and scripture, but in reality, you cannot do good science without a biblical foundation. Also, you cannot even understand scientific issues in their proper perspective without a biblical foundation. And I would go even further and say a biblical explanation because the Bible gives us a framework for all of science. And this is not only, you know, you've heard me talk about Genesis 1 a lot. Not only Genesis 1, but not only Genesis 6 through 8, which are highly scientific passages, by the way. Lots of elements in there describing the natural realm. But Romans 8, beginning in verse 18 through 21, is one of those fundamental passages that give us an explanation of the natural realm that science cannot give us. Science cannot give us because Paul is going to give us an interpretation of a past event that you can't reproduce. We can detect it. In fact, we know about it, but we don't understand it fully from a scientific perspective. But we have passages like this that give us the parameters, that give us the foundation, that give us the explanation 
of scientific realities that we can study and understand as we look at the natural realm and make observations. So what I'd like to do today is take this passage. We stressed the context last time, and I'll review the context here for you because it obviously is primarily spiritual, primarily biblical, obviously primarily theological. But within that, it gives us an explanation of the natural realm. And since you won't find this in virtually any commentary, and you won't obviously find it in a science textbook, I'd like to kind of stress this morning some of the scientific aspects that are brought out from this passage. And I've got a list of ten things on your outline sheet that we'll look at that are right in the text that give us a commentary on not just Genesis 3, but a commentary on one of the most fundamental laws of science not contested anywhere, observed in virtually every science that you can study. We can see it. We can observe it. In fact, there's formulas that we can derive to describe it in a mathematical, scientific way. So we're going to look at the second law of thermodynamics within Romans 8, 18 through 21. I may not even complete it, as you know. I have a hard time getting through one verse sometimes. <laughs> Context written to Romans, the heart of the Roman Empire, the heart of the intellectual world, the heart of the obviously political world. Rome, Rome and Athens, you'd say, intellectually were the centers there. So he's writing to an educated people and primarily dealing with the major doctrines relating to salvation or redemption. So that's kind of the historical context. We're looking at sanctification. That's the theological context here. And we're talking about a passage that's within sanctification towards the end. We've seen chapter 6 where he lays out the major principles relating to sanctification. We've looked at chapter 7 that uh, we have... Issues that arise as we try to live the life, the Christian life. In fact, it's very descriptive of experiences that all of us, and some of us to a greater degree than others. So he deals with the problems of living the Christian life. When we become Christians, everything is not automatically changed. We're changed spiritually and internally, but we still have the flesh, is what Paul uses. and We have to battle with that. And that battle can be very extreme. There's still the satanic world as well that we battle. So he doesn't mention so much the satanic world, but he deals primarily with the flesh. So he deals with the problems. We're in the latter portion of this section. Did you have a comment, Terry? No, I scratched my head. Yeah, you got to be careful because... I have to be careful when I go to auctions. <laughs> yeah. Well, in this class, too, because when you do that, then you're the one that reads the next one. So, <laughs> so chapter 8, we have uh, the power that is available. And one of the key things that we learn is we are not capable as believers to live the Christian life in ourselves. That's chapter 7. We need supernatural enablement. And that deals with the Holy Spirit, so that's been a major focus, the power available. 
And within that, within the context, is the passage we're looking at towards the end. He's already laid out some of the principles available there in terms of the Holy Spirit, indwelling presence, all of these issues. But one of the main instruments that God uses to conform us to his image or sanctify us is suffering. So the context of this passage is suffering, but Paul looks at it, and we spent two Sundays looking at this concept and how to deal with it, in the context, in its broadest sense. And he's going to give us a commentary of where suffering comes from and how it's affected the entire universe that's contained in this passage. So this is a very significant passage. So we're looking at chapter 8, the power to live the Christian life, the power for sanctification. We've seen power over the sinful flesh, first 11 verses. Sonship at the heart, we have a relationship with God. The unbeliever has no relationship with God. We are sons, we're in a family. And from that, we have all of the resources of that family, God himself. There's an inheritance, that's where he ends. And then beginning in verse 18, where we're looking at, beginning in verse 18 through 30, we have suffering in sanctification. So that's the context. That's the theological context. And one of the insights that he's going to give us is this perspective on the entire universe, basically, the entire natural realm, in order that we can focus, when we're in the middle of it, We need to keep our thinking in the right place. This is one of those things that we can think on and realize. And uh, this passage introduces us to that. And Paul actually goes into a little bit of detail concerning the natural realm. So we have a future hope, and that's what we focus in on. A future hope in the middle of suffering. So suffering is not going to be forever. Suffering is always temporal. And not only is it temporal, but verse 18 is going to tell us that there's an antithesis to suffering. In other words, there's another element going on in terms of suffering. And verse 18 tells us, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory. There's future glory. That's why I titled this portion on your outline sheet, Suffering Before Glory. And that was our focus the last two weeks. Suffering in Christ. Co-suffers with Christ. And that's the perspective we looked at it primarily spiritually, theologically. But I want to start by looking at some of the scientific elements. And it starts with the very first word there, at least in the English text, or the first major word there. For I consider, and let me just remind you, I gave you... uh, quick look at this word. This word occurs already. We've already seen it like 15 times in the book of Romans. It's the basic term that is related to logic. In fact, we probably get the word logic or logical from logizomai, the concept of reasoning, the concept of thinking. The New American Standard translates Paul here, consider. In other words, I consider something or I think about it. This is a Mathematical, in a secular world, it would be used, in the Greek world, it would be used in a mathematical context to make a calculation and to come to a sum after you've made a calculation or a result of 
working through a formula. It's used in accounting where you take in all the debits and all the profits and then you have a balance. So logizomai is that balance. It can be used in a scientific sense, obviously outside of the Bible, except maybe this one. This one may be used because of the context in this more scientific way in science, a reasoned conclusion after all the data is evaluated. So that's what a scientist does. He makes observations. After many multitudes of observations, he begins to formulate a hypothesis coming to certain conclusions. He runs that through some tests, and he comes to some conclusions. That's what this word means. Or it can be used in that context, logizomai. Now, it's also that word, we've seen it in the accounting sense in a spiritual way. This is the word that he talks about when he talks about righteousness being put to our account. The doctrine of imputation. We've talked about that, giving you a lot of detail. Where God imputes or makes, if you want to visualize it, makes like a spiritual deposit in the bank account of every true believer. And from that bank account, we have a resource to be able to live the Christian life. (coughs) Imputation. In this context, it is simply translated, I consider, but it's not just, I'm just thinking about it. It's not that, it's it's a conclusion. And what he's going to do is he's going to look at some very profound observations, you might say, scientific conclusions that Paul has come to in terms of suffering in its broadest context. Got that? So you could come up with a formula and the Q after you make the calculation is what Paul is saying here. I have come to this reasoned conclusion. That's what I kind of summarized on your outline sheet is the first point there. And this is a formula from a thermodynamics text that gives you some uh, idea of the second law of thermodynamics. You don't need to copy it down. So in science, the first aspect or insight that it gives us here is logizomai in verse 18. Paul is going to begin laying out a reasoned conclusion. And since it deals with the natural realm, we could say a scientific conclusion. So from the very beginning, what is he considering? I consider, after taking in all the data, and Paul is primarily thinking biblically, he's going to give us a commentary on a physical description in Genesis chapter 3. A description that deals with the natural realm. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with a future phenomenon it's going to take place in the natural realm. Okay? So the focus is a perspective on suffering. And like I said, we developed that. I'm not going to go over it again. Just to remind you, the term pathema, a common term, 16 times in the New Testament. We looked at a lot of the verses relating to it. It's related back to verse 17, where he introduces us to the concept of suffering as co-sufferers with Christ. And if we are co-sufferers with Christ and respond rightly to it, we will in the future be co-glorified people with Christ. We will receive his glorification. That goes back to verse 17. And it's not worthy to be compared with 
a future glory. That's what we're going to look at. And I use the comparison of our suffering is like a drop in comparison to the future glory of an ocean. So if you want to visualize your suffering, it's just a tiny little teardrop in comparison to the Pacific and the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans combined, all of the oceans, Mediterranean included, and more. And we looked up all these verses that speak of Christ's suffering, and most of them are in the context of suffering and then future glory. And we talked about other verses that speak of us sharing in his glory. This is not suffering as a result of our stupidity. It's not suffering as a result of the wrong decisions that we make. That's on us. We can suffer the consequences of wrong decisions. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about suffering as a believer, and it can include uh, persecution. It can include uh, suffering as we're trying to faithfully live the Christian life. You don't have to seek it. It'll find you. And these verses deal with that. And it can be physical. It can be emotional. It can be mental. It can be spiritual. We talked a little bit about that as well last time. Just reminding you, I'm still reviewing here, but bringing out some of the science here. That is to be revealed to us. There's going to be a future historical event. So we're talking science. We're talking history here. There's going to be a future event that every believer will experience. Connie. There, yeah, I think it's to us. Yeah, the Greek word there is ace. And I think it's more, oh, that didn't mean anything to you. That's <laughs> Greek to you. Uh, that word, most of the time, not all the time, it can, it can have two, but it's more directional rather than in. Okay? It's, in other words, something that's going to be revealed. In other words, oh, I see that now, rather than, oh, it's inside of me. Okay? Yeah, I think, and it could be used in both ways, but I think the predominant, and I think in this context, the two is a better translation. Good question, though, because that is that is crucial here. And in, in reality, there's other verses, and probably that's why yours is translated, there's other verses where it is going to be an internal revelation, but it's also going to be a revelation that's going to come to us and we're going to be able to see it. So this is, so we, it's not that we carry this, that we have this glory in us innately. It is going to be shown to us because someone else right. has it outside. So it's going to be like the curtain goes up and it's going ah. Yeah, exactly. And we're just getting into the verse because he's going to expand upon what, what we're going to see. Okay. And there's lots of other scriptures that add to what we will, in fact, see if we are genuine believers. So that's the, the antithesis to suffering is a hope of future glory. And in fact, the reality of that future glory. And then verse 19 through 21, there's the anticipation of this glory. And here is where he is going to talk in more detail Even the natural realm anticipates that future historical event. Okay? In verse 19, the creation is waiting. And by the way, I'm using alliteration after Paul's pattern. Remember what I told you last week. So we've got antithesis to suffering, and now 19 and 21, anticipation of glory, and the creation itself is waiting. 
for the anxious longing. This is deep longing, deep desire for for a change, for something to happen. The anxious longing. In fact, there's three words, three major words here. It takes several words to translate each of them. But Paul is alliterating, and let me just remind you, we went over these last time. The first one is the first Greek word, Hapokaradokia, eager expectation. And I use the image there because it's like stretching your neck out to be able to see something. In other words, you're just, can't quite see it, i got to look, stretch further. Or it's like sitting in the sands in an athletic context, and you just are watching intently, and now this great play, ooh, wow, you know, I'm looking very intently out at what's happening here. So it's an eager kind of an emotional looking for something, and in this case, it's something in the future. And it can involve this this anxiousness, this idea of, I can hardly wait. It's kind of, another way of illustrating it would be like children, those of you that have children and grandchildren, you probably don't remember your children, but you remember your grandchildren. Christmas Eve, that's the Greek word that would be used. For a child on Christmas Eve that can hardly wait to open presents the next morning. You got it? So that's anxious longing for the anxious longing of the creation. So we're talking about the natural realm. We're talking about nature, physical realm. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. So we have a second word that kind of piles on. And again, Paul uses another word and you notice he's alliterating. Apekdekomai, waiting in great anticipation. It's almost synonymous. But he's piling on ideas here. Perhaps maybe just uh, alliterate so that uh, you don't get mad at me when I alliterate. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for something, and notice, for the revealing. We have a third major word. In other words, there's going to be an unveiling, as Mary Lee said, Something that's going to be re- revealed in the future at a point in time, by the way, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. This expands a little bit what he's talking about in verse 18. That revelation that's going to be to us. It's a revealing, and the Greek word, notice the similarity, begins with the preposition apo, A-P-O, transliterated, and it also has, all of them have the K. And you're familiar with this one, Apocalypsis, apocalypsis. You know where that one is found. In fact, that's the first word in the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's going to be a revelation of Jesus Christ in the future. And when is that? What point in time? It's a question. When God chooses. Well, yeah. (laughs) We describe that in Scripture. You're the quiet one. Don't mumble. Speak louder. <laughs> the rapture. That'll be the revelation. And that one is private, personal, unseen by the world, but it'll be a revelation to the believer. And then there's going to be a public and spectacular, visible to everyone, a revealing of Jesus Christ when he sets foot on earth. Those two phases we call the second coming. That's what he's describing here. The apocalypse. So, creation is uh, waiting with 
The first bunch. With that... Apokaradokia. Yeah, that anxious longing in great anticipation... Yes. ...for the rapture to occur? Yes. Mm. He's going to explain why. Now... I think he's using personification here. You know what the figure of speech? We do this ourselves. We use personification. We give human attributes to non-human creatures, even things. Yeah. And I think, and, and this is not uncommon, by the way, in scripture. I think he's giving personality, you might say, so that we can kind of relate and understand. Does that make sense, Bill? The, the rapture is only the first of a train of events that are all bundled up inside this concept. Yes. It's not that all is, it's not that, that the second law of thermodynamics gets repealed at the rapture, but it gets repealed at the sequence of events that are started by it. Yeah, and you're jumping ahead already. Yep. yep. Yeah. Pardon? What are they anticipating? In other words, what is the creation anticipating? It's anticipating a release that we can identify with. He's talking about suffering here, remember? And we groan. He's going to get to that. I'm jumping ahead as well. We groan inwardly and sometimes not even knowing what we're hoping for and anticipating. And he's describing what that is. I think his need is his personification. Is the yeah, that's in here too. When you're pregnant, you really are anticipating that the baby finally be born. And the end, you know, yeah. So you guys are anxiously anticipating the next verse. <laughs> well, there you go. Go for it. Steve. Before we do that, I have a question. Uh, you're discussing this in terms of personification. Is there any merit to the, these are mental concepts, eager Is there any merit to the idea that nature itself has an aspect to it? Bill is almost inclined that there's that possibility, that there's more here. Yeah. Yeah. But at least personification, if not more. Yeah, but the creation is, in fact, well, let's get into the next verse. We'll explain it. So we can say from verse 18, we have a recent conclusion that Paul has come to, and he's laying this out for us all the way through at least verse 21. What we have in verse 19, in science, particularly in historical science, you create what you might describe as a model. In other words, a way of describing certain phenomenon that has lots of features to it. Like we have a flood model, for example, based on scripture. And it has a lot of aspects and a lot of details to it. And from that model, if that model is in fact a true representation of reality, then you can also, from that, you can derive things that you can predict. In other words... As nature unfolds, as time goes on, you can expect repeatability. You, you can expect certain things to come as a result of the conclusions you came to. That's a scientific model. And if you want to view this scientifically, what Paul is giving us in verse 19 is a prediction of what you will expect from this biblical, spiritual model. And there's some details, even in Genesis 3, that gives us hints of a future release. The seed of the woman is going to deal with evil in a total and final way. It's part of the model, part of the scientific model. And verse 19 is this eager anticipation of that future event 
that stems from the scientific model. Scratching? Um, so this whole thing is not just the suffering thing. What Paul is looking at is the whole thing. The whole universe. Of, of the unresolved conflict of evil in our world. So the, the, the issue of evil is what is we are all anticipating, you know, an end to it. The, the resolution of it. The, the, yep. The, yep. The eradication of it. The, well, more than an eradication, but the whole thing just all of a sudden coming into a... No, we are anticipating an eradication. Okay. Yep. Yep. And I think he's describing it here. Yeah. yeah. Right? What Bernie's really saying is it's, it's there's even a step beyond eradication. There is a, an eradication of evil. Yeah, also a revelation. There are steps in it, and and a, and a revelation of how evil has played a role in God's yes. life. Yes, yeah, that's and right. hopefully, I probably won't get to it today, but I want to give you a little expansion of that towards the end of what Bill's talking about here. <laughs> but Paul, Paul has you what? <laughs> so we need to get to it today, or she'll be on continue. Ah, well, good. I just told her she can read it. Yeah, it's okay. Well, <laughs> we want her to eagerly anticipate it. Oh, I am. Oh, my golly. Yes. But before he goes there, he has to tell us of what happened, and he's going to give us a commentary on Genesis 3. That's verse 20. The subjection of creation. And there's huge scientific implications here that I'd like to get into. For the creation was subjected futility. There's a lot that we can say about that. The create for the creation was subjected to futility. Now I think Paul is describing a physical phenomenon, a physical change that took place in time, in history. Okay? And this is huge. I can't explain it. In fact, I think if we get grasp this concept, it explains a lot of things in science. And I think uh, I would even go to the extent it resolves some of the issues within the body of Christ in terms of the issue of time as well, uh, in, in, in terms of the time of the universe. I, I won't have time to get into all of that, but just want to throw it out for you. So the creation was subjected to futility. Now, some of the key terms here, and I'm going to do this quickly. Greek word, tisis, that's the word for creation. Throughout scripture, it's a reference to the natural realm, the thing that science studies, the area of concentration for all scientists, the creation. Now, it calls it the creation. Secularists, the unbeliever, calls it nature. Same idea there. And there's a couple of passages. In fact, there's a few in the book of Romans where it's used. In fact, it's used six times in the book of Romans alone. Six out of, I think, like 14 or something. I can't remember exactly. The word subject to subject, the verb is the common word to put something in subjection, like a military invading another country and defeating it, and they subject it. Now they impose their laws upon that country. Old Testament, you can think of that. It's also the word that Paul uses in terms of wives submitting to their husband. So it's a strong word, and that's what we have here. In this context, it's an authoritative subjecting, and from the context, by God. God did something, and we'll see that as we move through the text. 
The word futility, there's the Greek word for it, matayotes, matayotes, is that how you pronounce it? Pronounce it for us. Futility, it has the idea of something that has lost its purpose or lost its usefulness. And now it's vain. It's, it's not, in this case, not necessarily totally useless, but it's lost its real purpose. And he's talking about the natural realm. So this is a drastic change that took place. Genesis 1 tells us that when God created, he created a very good creation. Very good. Remember that? Something happened in Genesis 3. This is the commentary on it. The creation was subjected to futility. That's probably one of the clearest statements of the second law of thermodynamics in all of Scripture. What is so significant about that statement, not only is it a statement in the second law, but it clearly illustrates that the second law happened at the fall and was not part of creation. I would and make that's that... A, that's a very significant... I point. would make that point, exactly. Everybody get that? Not everybody holds to this. Not every creationist holds to this. I'm going to repeat what Bill said. I think what we have here is Paul is identifying when the second law of thermodynamics was put into effect at the fall. So futility, emptiness, purposelessness. So let's add to our science insights here. It's not only a reasoned conclusion from Logizomai. It's not only part of this is a future description of what we will anticipate from this biblical scientific model, this eager anticipation but it's a historical event. The word to subject is in the aorist tense, not imperfect in the Greek. Imperfect is an indefinite past tense idea, something that took place, but when or the definiteness of it in the imperfect, it's not, it's the opposite. It's, it's indefinite. This is aorist, which is the other alternative. It refers to something that happened in time and the definiteness, the idea of definiteness took place. And I would say it's a historical event. Yes. Okay? Is that the tense? No, no, that's the perfect tense. Oh. Yeah. This is aorist tense. It looks at kind of completed event. Something like that... Completed action. Completed action, I'm sorry. Yeah. And it's in the passive. The creation was acted upon. It's in the passive voice, Greek voice, which this tells us that an outside force, we're talking scientifically, an outside force acted on the creation. This is not a natural phenomenon. Something outside of the universe acted upon the universe to cause this futility. Well, he said so. He says it wasn't willingly. Well, the creation didn't want it. See how anxious you are? You're jumping ahead. <laughs> this, is, this is even more evident yep. for the imposition of fall. Yes, absolutely. We we tend to think of the fall as just to be an atom issue. It was a cosmic, universal, uni- universe event. Exactly. And the second law, scientifically, is observed everywhere in the universe. Okay. And we could also say from the word futility that the natural realm had a change in its nature, a fundamental change in its nature. And you've heard me expound Genesis 3. All of zoology was affected. All of geophysics was affected. All of botany was affected. All of physics was affected. 
and it's stated in the text. Now it's using not scientific terms, but the description, the implication go far beyond just the, the words in Genesis chapter 3. So we have a fundamental change in the natural realm. And if we, we're not going to have time, but I want to get to next time. There have been two fundamental changes in the natural realm that have already taken place in the past. One at the fall, two at the Genesis flood, and this passage is anticipating a third in the future. And I've got it charted in terms of time. We'll, we'll look at that. So let's get into a little bit of physics here. Thermodynamics, and I use this to refute evolution, because evolution requires that you have some principle of innovation. In other words, you have to have something progressing from uh, disorder to order, innovation, that's fundamental to evolution. You have to have a movement from higher and higher, from lower to higher to higher complexity, and there's no such principle in the natural realm. Instead, thermodynamics, and you could say physics in general, and you can observe it in biology, you can observe it in virtually all the sciences, chemistry as well. We have a universally accepted principle. Science doesn't dispute it. It's been established. You can observe it every day. All you have to do is look in the mirror and you can see it. Compare your image yesterday to your image today and you see the second law of thermodynamics. (laughs) There's no exceptions. I don't see any exceptions out there. No exceptions (laughs) observed. Except what? True miracles. Well, and Clausius, Clausius said when he discovered the second law, all life violates. All life violates the second law. Overcomes it, I would say. And and so, yeah. uh, which which is the result of our spirit, a creator, creating. Yeah. Is in scripture that when the spirit leaves the body. Yeah. Here's a quotation out of one of my physics books, last century. From the ancient past, all right? Kelvin Planck version of the second law, it is impossible for any device operating in a cycle. And in general, it deals with heat exchange and work and machines and that sort of thing. It is impossible for any device operating in a cycle to absorb heat from a single reservoir and produce an equivalent amount of work. In other words, there's no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. There's no such thing as a machine that is 100% efficient. There's always a loss. There's always uh, something that goes wrong. There's always this degeneration going on. And you're not interested in it, but here's an easier description to understand. An irreversible tendency to unwind. You housewives know this. You clean the house. Sparkless. Sp- is that the right word? Spotless. Spotless. Sparkless and sparkless and whatever. You go on a two-week vacation and you come back and what? The lamp's fallen and there's <laughs> dust all over and, <laughs> and whatever. You're experiencing second law thermodynamics. Henry Moore says, in any physical change that takes place by itself, the entropy, in other words, the increase of disorder. Is that what entropy is? Entropy is a measure of yeah. writing equation. The increase of the dirtiness of your house. <laughs> That's entropy. In any physical change that takes place by itself, the entropy always increases. That's another, that's kind of the alternative way of describing the second law. Okay? 
Here's another quotation out of one of my, this, in fact, this was a physics book, Sears and Zemansky from Ancient Past. And I think it's descriptive, and I think we can kind of identify it. The first part is more science-related, but the second part I think we can uh, identify with. Thus, he always, the second law, always flows spontaneously from, from a hotter to a colder body. Gases always seep through an opening spontaneously from a region of high pressure to a region of low pressure. Gases and liquids left by themselves always tend to mix. You probably noticed that one. Not unmix. That's why you put your tea bag in there. It never unmixes. Rocks weather, you can visualize that, and crumble. They don't come together. Iron rusts, here you go. This one you can identify with. People grow old. Second law, biologically, anthropologically. These are all examples of irreversible. That's why I've got it highlight there. Irreversible processes. This wipes out evolution. Irreversible processes that take place naturally in only one direction. That's what the second law says. And by their one-sidedness express the second law of thermodynamics. Got it? So it's an irreversible tendency to unwind. For the man, your car falls apart. It never fixes itself. You have to add effort and energy to fix it. It doesn't fix itself. Irreversible tendency to unwind. Movement from organization to disorganization. The law of decay. That's the second law of thermodynamics. And by the way, there are spiritual laws. I think there's a second law of spiritual dynamics. The tendency for your spiritual life to decay and degenerate. You have to constantly give the power of the Holy Spirit to continually walk in the Spirit. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment experience. And there's other passages, the Romans 8, 20-22 passage is a central one. But there's passages like Isaiah 51, 6, we don't have time to look it up. Maybe I'll start with that one next week, where it talks about the heavens wearing out. The idea of things wearing out, degenerating, decaying, moving from organization to disorganization. Now you can identify with this one. Cartoon says, Mom... You can't fight the second law of thermodynamics, all things, which includes bedrooms, move from a state of order to disorder. If you got a smart kid, he might uh, throw the second law of thermodynamics and say, why, why clean it up, right? <laughs> For the creation was subjected to futility, and notice this. Mary Lee jumped ahead, not willingly. In other words, this is external. This is not a natural process. This is not the natural realm. The natural realm was different at one point. So we could say an outside agency. There's unwillingness in terms. This is still at least personification. Outside agency acting. But because of him, who's the him? It identifies the agent outside of the universe that imposed this law because of him who subjected it. Same word. So it was acted on by this outside agent, and then it looks forward in hope, and that's verse 21, anticipation of the creation 21, we don't have time to get into it, that the creation itself also will be set free. So there's going to be a releasing, and it's going to be in stages. It's not going to be all at once, as Bill was pointing out. I think the millennial kingdom is a description from Isaiah and other passages 
that give us a picture of a partial lifting or a partial, at least tempering, probably lifting is a better word there, of the second law. But it's not totally removed because of Isaiah 65.20. And that does not take place till the after the millennial kingdom, after a thousand years. I'll give you some of that detail next week. So if if the restoration of creation is going to be a process of stages of things, then um, was the subjection of creation a process or was it an instantaneous thing? Well, this verse, Aris Tense, that's why I made this, the, the point in the Aris Tense, it's a point in time. Okay, so it wasn't a process. Right. But I think you can see the effects of the act. Oh yeah, the effects were stuff. Years and now don't. Yeah, that's all. Stage, right? Yeah, the effects have been working themselves out. The degeneration of the gene pool. I mean, that's this is recognized in uh, microbiology, uh, only observed more recently, but lots of areas that you see it working itself out over time. Yeah. And we'll conclude, this is a divine action. He subjected it. God is the one that did it. It's not natural. In fact, he imposed it, is what the text says. Now keep in mind, we haven't gotten to verse 21. That's the positive. That looks to the future. And that's in the context of suffering. In other words, we will be released from whatever trauma, whatever suffering we experience today. In fact, the entire creation is going to experience that release. Make sense? Closing thought. The ultimate goal of sanctification is this glory that this passage is moving towards that we'll look at next week. Who wants to close for us? Our representative from the White House is going to do it. Thank you for your work and spend the of the sorting this out Amen. Have a good day. Have a good life. In spite of the second law.